1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, you know, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. With all that said, on with the show. Uh. <laughs> My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! Bad love! Bad love! Bad love! Bad Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Our topic today is The Jaunt, and our guest is the very talented screenwriter behind The Book of Eli and Rogue One, as well as the creator of the internet sensation, Loodle. I played that a ridiculous amount uh, during... Holy shit, I didn't know Gary did... Well, we'll get to that. Go ahead. Yeah, I know. I'm dropping bombs left and right here, even surprising my co-host. Our guest's newest project is a narrative podcast based off his novel called Gundog, and we'll hear a little bit more about that in just a second, but please... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Mr. Gary Witta to the KingCast stage. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm Hi. excited to be here. Loodle. I had no idea you were behind Loodle. That's awesome. I, I, you promised me you weren't going to bring that up. Well, I... <laughs> I promise I, no such things. So. Yeah. Um, of course. I'm, well, I didn't bring it up. Vespi brought it up. But uh, if I had known, I definitely would have brought it up. It's, it's funny how I was talking to someone about this the other day, how, you know, I labor night and day to like get my my serious day job type projects uphill it's this constant <laughs> sisyphean struggle to get anything right. to get any kind of traction and it's the stupid dumbass idea that you think is going to be the dumbest thing that actually ends up going viral that seems to happen to me all the time and the, the most recent example of that was was lewdly yeah we um we launched that for, for people that don't know what it is it's basically wordle with dirty words Mm-hmm. Um, and when Wordle was first exploding, I said to my, my friend Adam, who uh, is a is a game designer, and I knew we could build a website if you know very quickly if we wanted to. I was like, we should do a version of this because we were frustrated that when we tried to put dirty words into Wordle, it wouldn't allow them. <laughs> right. And I was, you know, because we're eight years old basically. And I was like, well, what if we? There should be a version that only takes dirty words. And we had a website up of it very very quickly. And I had very low expectations for it because it really was just like a, it was a gag or right? it was a stupid you know, riff on on Wordle. And I thought maybe if We'll put a we'll put like a handful of words up, and and maybe if uh, a couple of thousand people get a, get a laugh out of it for a, for a week or two, you know that'll have been worth it. But uh, we launched it in January. What is it now? We're in August. So it's about you know, in about six months. We actually have or have had over the court the lifetime of the game so far about twelve million players. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Good lord! Yeah, people love uh, dirty words. You know, uh, it's one of the things we discovered is like just when in doubt, just go straight into the toilet. <laughs> yes. And much like on this show, um, <laughs> one one thing I do want to talk to you about very briefly. Um, you are the screenwriter of Book of Eli, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, well, thank you. Just a 
a fucking masterpiece that movie mm. i love it so much uh i watch it like once a year because i'm not trying to overdo it um but i have a theory about book of eli that i kind of want to bounce off of you and i think okay. eric and i have talked about this before mm. but my opinion is that book of eli is the closest thing we've ever gotten to a a like a movie based on fallout the the video game franchise like it strikes me uh, in in the plotting and the you know and the, the narrative the setting and in every way you know like a like a fallout plot mm -hmm. like am i crazy or, or did that have any impact on you i mean you it's it? it's certainly not the first time that i've that i've heard it um mm -hmm. but uh the you know the real influences of it you know go back far Far, 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 farther back. So I'm sure <laughs> they go way further back. I mean, you know, the, the, the real influences for it are like the kind of early cinematic influences for movies that I love when I was younger. Like, you know, there's a lot of Zatoichi in there. There's a lot of Sergio Leone. Like it was, it was really just wanting to kind of mash up a samurai, like a Kurosawa type samurai movie with a uh, Sergio Leone kind of spaghetti Western and then kind of add this kind of sci-fi spin on top of it. It's a, the, 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 I, I get in, in retrospect, I totally get the fallout comparisons, but the, re mm -hmm. the reality is I actually wrote that script before I think fallout three, even which was the, you know, the kind of the, the beginning of mod, what we think of as modern fallout right. um, even came out. So a lot of it is, I think a lot of it is just like so much of as much as you try to, when you make a post-apocalyptic movie, so much of, of, um, you know, you really try to make your version of it distinct, mm -hmm. uh, but there's so much of that aesthetic and that language and what, you know, what we think of as like the furniture of the post-apocalyptic, so much of it is interchangeable, right? It's the goggles, it's the wasteland, <laughs> you know, it's that grimy <laughs> right. look yeah. that, you know, that Mad Max obviously established. And I mean, you go back even further than that, you know, boy with his dog and there's, yeah. there's, there's, there's a certain, yeah, a you can only one. get so far away from that, I think. And I was very determined. Like I wanted Book of Eli to have a, a very grounded, gritty look. Because I always, I always used to think when I would watch Mad Max, like who's doing their hair? Like those, <laughs> those are very elaborate hairstyles for a world where people barely have enough to drink. And so I, I wanted it to feel more like closer to something like Threads or The Day After. Like this is what right. it would actually look like, really fucked up and like not not the coiffured, glamorous Hollywood version of the apocalypse, but um you know something much more grounded and, and gritty and real in the end the movie you know we i think we found a, a, a kind of a middle way because alan and albert really wanted to have this very stylized almost kind of a graphic novel type look and the movie's like heavily color processed and heavily filtered and yeah it has a it has a very you know all, all the skies are like digital sky replacements and they really did this whole look on it and it was like for example like, i remember for example like mila kunis like for her character she wanted to have like really fucked up teeth she was like, again, like who's like who's like who who are the dentists in this world? Like, why would right. I have like I, my teeth would be all fucked up? But like again, it's a Hollywood movie. They're like, no, you're Mila Kunis. We're not going to give you fucked up. Teeth. <laughs> so there's always that there's always that compromise between like you know the creative like this is this, this is kind of like the division for like making it seem grounded and gritty. But at the end of the day, these are movie stars, and you want it to look. You know, there's always that trade up between what looks cool and what looks like a, a properly lived in world. You know what I mean? Huh. Right. I, I have something that I might want to share. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but I have one little brush up with uh, the book of Eli people. Um, and that's, I was at Comic-Con uh, when uh, there was the the big presentation there. And yeah, I, I was there for that too. Yeah. So I, I was there sitting in the green room to do interviews after the panel. Um, and I was scheduled to chat with, 
Gary Oldman and Mila Kunis separately. And I was over the moon. Never right. in a million years would I have gotten Denzel. You know, that just wasn't, I wasn't at that, that station. Right. Uh, so I was like, Oh, I'm very happy to, to talk with these two Gary Oldman in particular. And, mm-hmm. and so I sat down and I'm sitting there waiting for my turn. And, you know, there's like a bunch of circular tables in this one big room and there's a couple of journalists waiting for their interviews over on the left and a couple on the right. And I'm sitting there and the door opens and, uh, you know, a little gaggle of people walks in, including Denzel Washington. And then everybody's like, oh, Denzel. like crazy, you know, and he's got that charisma, right? You see him walk into a room. He knows every eyes on him and you just can't help but, but watch him. And he it's, uh, it's so true. I remember when he used to when I, I, I would work with him on the script yeah. and he would walk, he would walk in. And there's something, some people just have that aura, that quality. I, 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 I said to someone about it after the fact, it was like, if, if Denzel Washington wasn't a movie star and he was just the guy that like came into the office to fix the photocopier, <laughs> you, would, you would go over to him and say, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Why are you fixing photocopiers? You're a movie star. Can you not see you're a movie star? Like he just has that. There's yes. a gra- and it's not just about being good looking, you know, it's, it's a, it's oh, a yeah. thing. It's a gravitas that you can't defined but you, you're absolutely right you know the second he walks into the room just something about it and in this situation he like you know the he kind of separates from the the you know the little entourages like publicists and stuff and and he walks and i notice he's walking kind of in my direction and then he pulls up a chair right next to me on this giant table right <laughs> so he comes next to me pulls up a chair sits down doesn't say a word just looks at me and i look at him and i go hi and he goes you're not the one i'm supposed to be talking to are you and i said nope and he goes my man and he stands up and walks up and finds his interview oh, you and got a my man from denzel? i got a, i got my man from denzel which is which is the best he's like, my man and he's and that's it and then he proceeds to interrupt my interview with mila kunis where he keeps like talking to her and like answering her questions, you know, to, to, you know, the questions that I'm giving her like in, in sparring back and forth. It was one of the most like surreal fucking interview experiences of my career. So I wanted to share that since, uh, you know, since it's not often we have somebody associated with that, with that. Gary, did you I just was, lose your fucking mind when you found out Denzel was interested in the role? I mean, I, I remember when I was first talking to Alan and Albert, the directors about it, like, who do you, who do you see in the role? When I, when I wrote the movie, I didn't, see anyone like because i i just i just knew it was someone older like (laughs) you didn't see anyone for well well, yeah okay sorry no no pun intended it wasn't but you know usually when you write sometimes you fantasy cast it like you put someone in your head just so you can kind of play the scene on your internal movie projector and i think the closest i ever had in my head was like morgan freeman or like billy bob thornton for some weird reason i don't know i just Mm. knew it was someone older and i knew it was i i didn't want someone who looked it, it needed to be someone who didn't necessarily look like formidable to begin with. You it looked like someone that you would underestimate, but then like, oh shit, like this guy's got the goods, right? That was kind of the the idea. Right. Um, there needed to be kind of you know, humility about him. But I never had like someone in mind, and that was why when I first met Alan and Albert, I was I was like, who do you think? And it was like, oh, there's only one choice, Denzel. It's the only person that can do this. And I remember immediately thinking, well, good luck with that. <laughs> um, and of course they went and got him. Uh, and I, I, and it was, it was amazing. And I was nervous when I first had to go work because they were like, Denzel wants to work with you on the script. And they, I went to his house. Um, he obviously lives in this insane house. I've got, I've got anecdotes for days, but I just remember I was nervous to meet him for the first time because, you know, like we talked about that gravitas and he is who he is and he walks in and like, you immediately like you want to, you don't want to put your foot in your mouth, right? You want to make a good impression. 
But of course, right. the more that's in your head, the more you are likely to put your foot in your mouth. Anyway, I was I was very nervous about <laughs> yeah. it. And he had Denzel has I had been told that he has a reputation for being a bit prickly, right? And a bit yeah. like it's it's not I've heard that. It's it's it, it but what it, I, I think my from my experience, what it turns out is like he just expects you to be as dialed in and as focused as he is, right? Because and he doesn't he does no tolerance for people that aren't bringing what he's bringing. Like because he if he's doing something, he's there. Like he doesn't phone anything in, and you and you need to be on the same level as him. You need to be totally committed, right? Because that's he, like everything that he does, he goes all in, and that's why his work is so good because he totally commits. And so he just expects that from you as well. Um, and so maybe the people that have said that he's prickly are telling on themselves a little bit. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It's like, the, <laughs> yeah. and so I, I sat down with him and he was going through the script page by page. And again, I'm still in like the surreal. I mean, Denzel Washington's house of it all. Mm-hmm. And the first, and he's, and he's literally giving me his notes on the script. Right. And I'm writing them all down. And most of his notes for, in my view are like totally on point anyway. Like he totally got it. He understood what the movie was about. He was, he was like, I'm not in this movie because I want to fuck people up with a sword. I can do that in a million different movies. I'm in this yeah. because I'm re- you know, he related to the the spiritual themes, right? The religious themes. Like his father was a was a um, a Lutheran minister, and he grew up like very much in like a like he's a man of faith, and he really you know he genuinely like believes, right? And so yeah. he, the, 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 this character is kind of like an avatar of that. Like he really connected to it, and so. Because he because he understood the movie the way I wanted it to be understood, like all of his notes, you know, were kind of on point. And then there was a couple of notes where I was like, oh, I'm not 100 in, in agreement with you there, but I would just like just don't like pick your battles, right? Like I don't want to start pushing back. Like let's, I want to get kind of comfortable with him. Right. And and then eventually he 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 mentioned one thing that I just flat out didn't agree with. So I, I was like, no, I have a totally different interpretation of of. I don't remember even know what it was, but I was like, that's the first note that I just flat out have the opposite view. He would and not thought, be in Hello Kitty, Denzel, and I'm going to put my foot down right now. So I was okay. Now, okay, let's let's let, let's find out where we are here. And I just I, I picked my moment. I was like, okay, let's let's just look okay, at let's just put a pin in that for a second. Let's let's sit with that for a moment. I was like, okay, here's why I have the. I wasn't like I just I tried to couch it. I wasn't like you're wrong or I disagree. I was like, here's what here was my intention when I was writing that. And like, let me try and explain like what I was trying to get to. And and I explained it my way. Like it was like my most diplomatic way of like disagreeing with him that I possibly could. And I laid it all out. And there was like a 10 second pause where he just kind of sits there, like staring at the page, just think you can tell, you can see the wheels turning as he's like, as he's like processing what I'm thinking, what, what I just said. And I fully was like, I almost had like one hand on my little laptop bag. Cause I was fully expecting to say, get the fuck out. You know, like just, he could, <laughs> right. he could, he could have been that eventually he looked at me and said, you know what? You're right. Let's do it that way. And I was like, oh, that was kind of the breakthrough. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, one of the reasons why people like Denzel Washington are successful is they don't care who has the best idea. They don't care if they're the person who has the best idea. They just want to get to the best idea. Right. Right. And because they know, because he, they, I remember when I worked with Will on After Earth and when I, they all say the same thing as like, as long if we keep, whoever, if the best idea keeps winning, it, it only makes me look good in the end, right? Because I'm going to be the guy up on the screen. And so they understand that and they just want to get to the best version of the movie, regardless of like who has the best idea. And once I made that little breakthrough with Denzel, then it became much more like we, we, we became very kind of like pally and joking around. And his wife would come in and bring us like her Jamaican jerk chicken wings that she would make and like, and it, it, it became like, you know, I would show up every day and I was like, oh, Gary's here. And it just, it was this surreal 
time in my life when I would go to Denzel Washington's house every day and, and <laughs> right. sit and eat chicken wings and work on the script. It was mad. Oh, that sounds so awesome. I love it when Denzel does genre as well. It's oh, like for sure. He, he doesn't do it often, but when he does, it's always... I guess because you're right, he brings that level of attention to detail and he treats a genre character like he would be treating, a, you know, the Macbeth, you know, movie. I, I think I think he's a tremendous asset yeah. to genre projects. And I also wish he would do more. I remember Alan Hughes said uh, the most expensive, spe- we talked about Eli said the most expensive special effect in this movie cost $22 million and it's Denzel Washington. <laughs> right. and, and, it, and it's true because what he does is it's so easy to not take genre seriously, right? As soon as you talk it like space, aliens or time travel or whatever it might be. You instantly kind of go. You got to. You got to sell this to me, right? Like a lot of people go in with their arms folded, and but as soon as you see Denzel Washington, it's like a credibility amplifier. You instantly go, "Oh, okay." I, I now I am leaning in. Now I am because fucking Denzel, right? And so he instantly l- lends this kind of credibility and gravitas, and kind of pluses up, e- even if it's kind of pulpy. I, you know, I think Book of Eli is fairly pulpy in many ways, sure. but but he instantly elevates it just by being the guy that's doing it you know it's 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 miraculous yeah i love tremendous tremendous actor and uh we're gonna need you to get him on the show uh yes but (laughs) um, he's a stephen king fan uh we we're gonna need some of the some of those uh chicken wings yeah oh they were uh, so good let me tell you oh i could (laughs) fuck with some wings right now but uh let's let's uh move on now to a question that we ask all of our guests gary what is your stephen king origin story so I thought about this earlier when you first raised it. Uh-huh. And I think like organically the very first place that my memory goes in terms of the the, the first thing I remember with Stephen King was I grew up in the UK. Uh, but we got a lot of American television, a lot of American films, you know, we've always we've always import, imported a lot of our popular culture from the US. Mm-hmm. And what I remember is it was on that we sh- in the UK it got shown on the BBC. It was the it was the it was the television adaptation of salem's lot the one with david soul do you remember that one yeah the toby yeah. hooper yes yes yeah. and it was um it was it was it was a tv was it like a mini series or something here because in the because i remember it was like shown as like a tv i don't know if they like chopped a movie up or something but in the uk it was like a, it was like a limited it was like a like a short series like a short television series the image that, uh, that i remember the most and it's something i still it freaks me out sometimes is the image of the little vampire kid tapping on the window? Oh, and, yeah, right. and, oh, yeah. and then and then floating in through the window. Do you remember that? Yeah, that it's one of the most indelible images in all those, of like those fucked up vampiric eyes that that kid has. Yeah, it's one of those. Like, there's certain things I watched when I was a kid that my parents really shouldn't have let me watch. George Romero's Dawn of the Dead is one of them, and I still can't watch that movie to this day because I watched it when I was like ten years old. And it imprinted on me in a way that like, I still have nightmares about zombies to this day. And I still can't watch anything with zombies because it, it takes me right back to like how, how much the Dawn of the Dead freak. I still have trouble walking around shopping malls. Like it just, <laughs> it just got, it, it just got into my very nascent, you know, kind of still developing brain when I was a kid and that fucking kid tapping on the window in oh, Salem's yeah. lot is still, that's probably my earliest Stephen King memory. That's a so wonderful did you, Shot, did you yeah. move on to like reading the books or watching more of the movies or, you know, what is your, like what level? Yeah, of a bit of both. I mean, you? like some of the early other stuff, I definitely remember Creepshow, a bunch of images from Creepshow that, that, that stuck with me and, and 
you know, really bothered me and I found really disturbing. Again, even though Creepshow is very campy, it's got some really fucked up stuff in it. Um, and then I did, I read, I, I try to remember, like, if I can remember, like, the first Stephen King book that I read. I think it might have been, geez, you know, I don't even remember. I, I read a bunch. Of, I may have come to the books, like, I, 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 there's so many that I read. I, it may even been the short stories, some of the short story collections first. But, like, my, definitely my first exposure to any Stephen King was through the TVs, the TV shows, and and the movies, like and, and 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 the books, you know, kind of. I think it's probably that kind of, that way for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's probably for most people that were born like after a certain time, because it, it feels like my parents' generation is the generation that would have known the books first, right? That they would have been uh, familiar of with Stephen King as the popular writer first before. Uh, mm-hmm. He was just there was three adaptations every every year, you know, because there's a pretty big jump between Carrie and Salem's Lot. I think it was like a two year, right, two year like drought of like Carrie the movie came out, which helped propel him to stardom. But then like he put out books that didn't get adapted for for a long time, you know. So it, it wasn't until the eighties where you were getting a Stephen King movie every like three months, you know. And the 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 third the third one that just came to mind, and I, I hesitated to even bring it up because it's it's almost like a it's such a cliche at this point, but it is one of the most abiding images. Is I very much remember The Shining again. I watched that when I was too young. I didn't understand any of it. I didn't really understand right. what was going on. I just I just knew that it was it was deeply creepy. Everything about that movie is deeply eerie. And you know the, the two girl, the two girls in the hallway. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure you've discussed it a million times on on this podcast because it's what it is one of the most iconic pieces of Stephen King imagery, perhaps the most iconic piece of Stephen King imagery there is. But there's there's something like deeply weird about that. And to, again, to this day, walking down long hotel hallways, you know, you yep, can't you can't help but think of every every time you turn around a corner, you can't help but think about it, right? You know, it's funny you bring that up because we've covered The Shining a lot on this show, and I don't remember ever having a conversation about the twins really yeah like i mean i think it's i i and i i think it's probably because it's just like we we also i don't recall like centering any amount of conversation on the here's johnny moment it's you know that shit is so iconic that it's like i i feel like it's almost like you don't even have to talk about it. I mean, that's, it's, that's it's what I'm saying. Like it's almost, it's almost kind of trans it's, it is, yeah. it's transcended. Like it has broken through like on such a pop culture level. Right. Um, and, th- and those, and those are the two, I'm sure those are the two famous images, like right? the, the ax and the face through the door and the two girls. But I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting discussion in and of itself. Like is like, what is the most single, most iconic piece of Stephen King related imagery? I would argue mm. that it's the two girls in the hallway. <sighs> Oof. The, Man, that the is pen, fucking, Pennywise holding a balloon is, is going to be. Yeah, up that's there. another good one. I mean, the Salem's Lot thing you mentioned earlier is right. definitely in that in the conversation. I don't know if it wins, but it's 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 there to compete. Right, for sure. Uh, um, you know oh, when be. when Bates smashes uh, Khan's ankle in misery. You know her with the sledgehammer. I think is you know I think that's up there. mm Hmm. I still find the book, ver- I mean, it's obviously one of the biggest chain. I still, I, I, cause I, I read the book before I saw the film and I still, the, 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 the book version of it, even though it's something you only read rather than I'm fully like visually exposed to the, the, I've, I, the, the, the book version obviously is so much worse, right. In terms of what she does to him. Oh yeah. Right? And I, I, I still think there's an argument to be made that they shouldn't have changed it. I there's an interesting, I, I feel like I understand why they did. 
but the book the book version is to me haunts me more than the film version. I think it would have been too much. It would have it, yeah, it's just um I I like that the book is its own thing and the movie is its own thing, but they are also the same thing. Uh if you want the gruesome version, you read the book. If you want like the more palatable version, you watch the movie. And right. I think I I do think the movie is better for it because that movie with that cast, that director, same screenwriter, all that shit if you just add a bunch of like her cutting his thumb off and, and all that shit, like it doesn't add anything to that movie. It wouldn't she cut his thumb it. off as well. Yeah. With like a fucking carving knife, right? Recipe with like, the I, mean, I remember that. I, I just remember the feet. I don't remember the, the thumb, but okay. Yeah. And I think it's just one foot in the, yeah. In the book. Yeah. Right. Where, whereas both ankles right. get their thing. I, there is something though. I think we've been so desensitized to slicing violence, especially at that point. That's like at the tail end of all the, you know, a decade of, of Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees, you know, dominating horror. Uh, for some reason, like I don't think the image of Kathy Bates cutting off James Conn's foot with an axe and is then nearly as it cringy with a, a blowtorch. Yeah, it's... yeah. Is well, I don't think that's nearly as cringy though as the as the in a good way. Uh, as the image of seeing that ankle just flop. You I mean, know what I, mean, I mean, you know, they, 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 they shot it. So, I mean, it, you know, it's yeah. shot and edited and cut at exactly the right moment. And I, th- I think, I think you're right. I mean, again, it's an interesting conversation, but I think ultimately, yeah, it was the, it, it was the right choice for the book. What they did in the book was the right oh, choice for, for the sure. book. And what they did in the movie was the right choice for the movie, because clearly yeah. the, the, even though it's massively diluted and less horrible than the book version, the movie version of that scene went on to, again, become a pop culture moment in its own right, right? They, For they, sure. They, right. they did it right. right. Yeah. I think it could be very effective. Don't get me wrong. You know, those actors, that director, that time, they could have done anything and it would have been, it would have worked. But but there's just something about, you know, it, it, the one-two punch, you know, breaking one ankle and then the next and, and only showing his reaction on the second break because the audience has already seen what it looks like. So now you're just fully on yeah. his pain. It, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just, just, just like, even if you really wanted to do it that way, it would have created a practical problem from the rest of the movie. Like they would have had to like rub, like, like Forrest Gump, his feet, right, <laughs> right. For, the whole, for the whole rest of the movie, which would, 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 would have been a whole, a whole And this issue. was before he could have just worn a green sock and they could have rotoed it out. Right, exactly. <laughs> e- easy to do now. <laughs> not, maybe not, not so much back then. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the story you brought us today for the show is The Jaunt. Um, one of our absolute favorites, um, second only in my mind to crouch end in terms of the best Stephen King short stories. It is a, this thing is a fucking powerhouse. And, and you were, you were, uh, surprised to learn that we'd only covered this once before on the show, really. Uh, so we're surprised as well. And (laughs) also like, I'm really excited to have another opportunity to talk about this because this is like a really rich piece of material. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that we were able to talk about it as well. I think I mentioned when you when you first said to me like you know, let us know like what your top three things are that you you want to talk about and we'll let you know if anything's kind of just been done recently or whatever. Mm-hmm. I I knew that the jaunt was the thing would be my number one, but I very much had like my two and three already because I I was thinking immediately like when when they come back and say, Oh, we've done the jaunt a million times, what's your <laughs> second choice? I I wanted to have something kind of queued up. So I was genuinely surprised. When you came back and said, oh, no, yeah, we can totally do the jaunt. We've only done it once or twice before. Because here's the thing. It's obviously in the greatest Stephen King canon, it's not even close to being one of his best known works, right? There's oh, yeah. for it, there's Shining and Salem's Lot and Misery and you know a million it and a million other things ahead of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to like a relatively obscure 
short story from one of his early anthologies, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but if you know, you know, right? And and mm-hmm. and what I and what I know is anytime I mention it on social media or talk to talk to other like nerds and people in this space and other enthusiasts, that everyone goes, oh fuck the yeah the jaunt, like they mm-hmm. all know it. And they all respond, and they instantly hit like longer I, than you think. I did it yesterday, right? So I, I was I mentioned that I was reading the jaunt for some research on something, and instantly I got like a dozen responses. It's longer than you think. Like everyone <laughs> remembers me. it. Sorry, I know right? I was very every basic, but- everybody remembers it, and and mm-hmm. and it's it's one of these things. Again, it's not the most widely known, but I think it is one of the most widely liked and talked about and remembered pieces among people that know of it. Does that make sense? Oh, oh, absolutely. 100%. It's, it's a perfectly executed story. You know, there's there's no there's no fat on it. There's no um, which, you know, would be uncommon in a short story to begin with. But, you know, it's it's lean and mean. And that that ending, I think, is what what gives it all of its power. You know, it's like a it's like a particularly dark and not funny episode of Tales from the Crypt. You know, it's right. just it's king at the top of his powers. And it's and it's as much science fiction. It doesn't really become horror until close to the end, and then obviously yeah. at the very end. But for the most part, it's more of a science fiction story. For, oh you, yeah, you, you feel like you're reading a science fiction story, and then you realize, oh shit, no, this is Stephen King. And at the end, it goes full horror at the end, and that's kind of the genre bending nature of it. I think is what makes it uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Yeah, it's very much like a Heinlein story. You know, where it's like very believable, but you, like, like I believe the jaunt. Uh, technology could exist at some point. You know what I mean? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's believable in the same way that like teleportation and star Trek and, or the, you know, be me up shit, you right. know, is believable at some point. Okay. I buy it within the rules of the universe. Uh, but you know, I mean, that is going to be something that I think humanity is, is going to turn to at some point, you know, yeah. it's, whether it's out of necessity because the planet's dead and we need to somehow get, the survivors off yeah. of onto a new planet or something. It's not going to be on a, a Wally, you know, style spaceship where we're just going to be frozen for, for the 800 years it's going to take to make the mm-hmm. journey or whatever. Yeah. One of the like reasons that. why I think King is such a smart writer is on display in that story. And that even though he's dabbling more in science fiction, he doesn't make the mistake that a lot of science fiction writers do and get bogged down in kind of the nerdiness and the detail of the technology, right? Like it's easy right. to get seduced by how it all works but he like, and you're right. It is essentially a form of teleportation. And even though it's chronicles in large part the invention of it, like the eureka moment of how it's mm-hmm. discovered, he doesn't. He doesn't waste any time like explaining it. Like it's just like it's just kind of taken for granted that he's invented this thing, right. and he and he tells you only enough to establish the rules of how it works because that's necessary for the plot and the twist at the end. So sure. very very efficient writing. Do you want to do a real quick? plot summary for anybody that might not have read this it doesn't have to be long but you know do, do you want to kind of set up what the yeah sure. about? actually i love explaining it for people people say oh, i've never heard of the jaunt i was like oh let me tell you i love doing <laughs> yes, it, do it. <laughs> um so again it's a very very short story and it's it's told essentially kind of in, in these in these two interlaced um uh time frames of the past and the present and uh it's it's very kind of artfully done through the device of a father explaining to one of his children how the how teleportation technology works as they all live in the future right earth has been through this energy crisis but at some point in the some point in their in their recent past they invented teleportation and it kind of fixed everything right because the like the energy crisis moving goods around the world moving people around the world they don't need oil anymore like it's just you know it it to- in the same way that jeff goldblum you remember in the fly says this is going to change the world as we know it right well this is what's happened 
it's completely changed the way that we think about travel and, and moving around where you can literally travel from Earth to Mars instantaneously, right, through the miracle of, of teleportation. And it's essentially become the new consumer mass travel method, right? You go to, you go to, the, you go to the New York Port Authority, you go to the, their version of an airport, and you basically sit in these rows of chairs, much like you're on an airplane, and these very nice kind of flight attendants come by and they knock you out. They give you like a little gas mask that knocks you out because for reasons that are going to be explained, you have to be unconscious when you jaunt, when you teleport, essentially. You can't go through it while you're in a waking state. And so everyone gets, gets a little gas mask and they all get very peacefully kind of go to sleep. And then um, you get shunted through this gate, through this portal base, basically, while you're asleep. And you instantly come out the other side, right? There's no intervening space. Like it's like a fraction, a millisecond, and you're on and you're on the other side. Any any distance, New York to LA, LA to Mars, you name it, you can instantly be there. But you have to go through while you're asleep, uh, and they make sure that everyone's knocked out. And the father, the whole family is moving to Mars to take a new job, and the father is explaining explaining to his two very curious children. His wife's there as well why how jaunt they're they're nervous about taking the gas and the mask and like why do we have to be knocked out to go through and how does this all work and so he's telling the story he thinks he can kind of like make them less afraid of it if he tells the story of like how this technology was invented and that's kind of when you go into this flashback is like as the father's telling you the story you know you kind of you kind of dissolve into this into this part this kind of flashback time frame of this kind of genius eccentric inventor like in his little warehouse who's basically much like kind of Seth Brundle in The Fly, right? He's kind of fiddling around with teleportation in his little home laboratory. And he 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 kind of accidentally stumbles into it, right? Oh my God, I can teleport something. He has these two, these two portal gates set up on opposite sides of his lab. And when he puts his hand through the portal, it instantly comes out. The, it kind of like just immediately kind of comes out the other side. He can wiggle his fingers. Oh shit. Like it totally works. And anything he puts through seems to work fine like just you, know, you scan it the, the organic uh, or, or the uh, you know the molecular structure of it is completely unaffected like p- things seem to be able to pass through this portal gate completely you know completely fine right. and then okay so the next step of course is to test it on living things so he goes and gets a bunch of mice and he starts he starts putting these little mice through the gate but when the mice go through the gate they kind of topple over like instantly dead like they they live for maybe a couple of seconds but something's deeply wrong with them they stagger around and they just die it's like okay well that's an issue and he's yeah. trying to figure out like what the problem is and he's experimenting with different ways to do it and he like puts the back end of a mouse through like just kind of the butt end and its little feet are waggling on the other side of the portal pulls it back through no problem at all puts the head through dies it's like, okay, what is going on here? And then, and then he starts knocking the mice out, right? You'll kind of drug the mice, tranquilize them, put them through, and when they wake up, they're fine. And so they don't understand the reason why, but they know that you're totally fine if you go through the portal unless you're in a conscious state. You cannot be awake. But they yes. don't know why, right? Because the mice can't tell them anything. They die almost immediately. And so they do this human trial, where they basically offer up like a bunch of death row convicts the option to test this thing. Like, we'll give you a pardon if you're willing to go through the gate and tell us what happens when you go through conscious. And they send this death row inmate through and they build this kind of big, like man-sized portal gate, like out in the desert. And he walks through, instantly comes out the other side, but he's all fucked up, like white hair, 
you know, like dark brown hair. Like he looks good. Like he looks, he just, this guy just looks like he's been through hell. And he just kind of staggers around a bit and says like, it's eternity in there. And then he falls over dead. And essentially what they figure out is that if you go through this gate unconscious, no problem. You'll wake up on the other side. You'll never know anything happened except now you're on Mars or wherever it is you want it to be. But if you go through in a conscious state, though on the outside, you appear to pass through the gate instantaneously. In terms of your own perception, you essentially spend, in all practical senses, infinity inside this completely deathless sensory deprivation void, where <laughs> over the course of perhaps yeah. millions of years in your perception, you're just completely alone with your own thoughts, and you don't age, you just, you just go fucking absolutely insane over the course yeah. of a completely unfathomable amount of time, a million lifetimes. And when you come out the other side, no time has passed on the other side, but you've been in, you've been in that, that sensory hell, that black void for, for a greater amount of time than a human brain can possibly deal with. And you just fucking die when you come out the other side. So it's essentially one of the worst existential horrors you could possibly imagine. Right. Like, and Indeed. that's the genius of King, right. Is putting forward an idea that is like, it's a fate worse than death. Right. It's so like, if you said to me, would you rather be in, would you rather be in hostel or a movie version of the jaunt? I would honestly rather have the guy saw my fucking legs off because at, <laughs> le at least it would be agonizing, but at least it'd be over in a couple of days. Right. As right. opposed to a million billion fucking years of existential mental, just, the worst horror you can you can't even imagine right and that's the genius of it and so the technology even though it has that that one that one terrible pitfall they commercialize it they monetize it it becomes the new way to travel and it becomes completely new not everyone's comfortable with it some people don't like taking the gas or whatever but it is essentially the new way to travel and so all of this is all of that backstory is told in the context of the father telling the children about how the jaunt technology was invented all those years ago and so everyone takes the everyone takes the gas. Everyone takes the you know the masks come around. The kids breathe in the, the the gas and go to sleep. And they go through the they go through the gate. And then the father wakes up on the other side, essentially in the Mars terminal. And there's some kind of terrible commotion going on, some kind of screaming. And he really the, the the terrible twist, like the final page of the story, is you realize that the kid that was very curious about well, how long is it? Like how long can you really be in there if you go through awake? Held his breath while they gave him the gas. Went through awake. And has now emerged on the other side as some kind of horrendous demon spawn, fucked up version of himself, <laughs> barely recognizable of his own as his own child anymore. And is basically like screaming, "It's longer than you think, Dad! It's longer than you think!" And like clawing his own clawing his own eyeballs out, and has basically just gone completely fucking insane yep. because he's been inside the jaunt void for a billion years huh. and that's and, and that's the end of the story is just everyone screaming and freaking out as this kid is like tearing his own eyeballs out and it's one of those stories where you put the when you put it down when you're done and you just go fuck me and and, <laughs> and you're still thinking about it 20 years later right you, you just describing it i i have goosebumps now that that ending like and i've said this m multiple times before and i'll say it multiple times uh, in the future i'm sure like that final page i think like bar none is the scariest thing King has ever written. Uh, to me, it's like, one of the there, best final pages in any like piece of horror fiction that I've ever read. There's just something about it that gets under my skin in a way that like, I just don't get when I'm reading horror. Like I, I, I like reading horror. I like, like I'm more interested in it than I'm scared by it, but there's that, there's just something in the way he describes the, 
like because it's like a 12 year old boy who like goes through and then comes out and he describes him as being both adolescent and ancient at the same time the, i mean this is sometimes why fiction works better on the page because if they were to make this into if they were to ever adapt this for the right. screen like whatever they could put on screen would not be as terrifying as the image that stephen king puts in your head right just for by sure. describing it sure yeah i'm not sure how you would get that part across i'm sure you could you could do something really gnarly like poltergeist dude ripping his face off in the mirror style thing is he's clawing at his own face you know screaming like right it's longer than you think like I, that could still be effective but uh but you're right doing the the old young person outside of like i don't know it just would look like a kid in a in a like an old man mask or something it looked like carl havoc you know <laughs> my, i mean my inclination if i if, if i were, were involved in any kind of film version of it would be to show as little as possible and again try and leave it up to the imagination because what's happening in the in the in the story is all the flight attendants are like crowded around him like trying to restrain him right because he's freaking yeah. out in the, in his chair is that i think you could use camera angles and like cut a cutaways and things like just show enough to make you think oh my god but like you don't want to I, I wouldn't linger on it right that would be my right. instinct mm. one thing we've talked about a lot on this show is that when Stephen King, okay, <laughs> Stephen King has approached science fiction on a number of occasions, and like here we're talking about Tommyknockers or Dreamcatcher. You know, those are big, big sci-fi swings, and they are, in our opinion, misses. Um, the jaunt is is King just firing on all, all cylinders with sci-fi. You're you're a guy who strikes me as a. a a dude who knows his way uh, around science fiction. Um, how do you how do you feel about the sci-fi in the story? Do you think it's do you think as Vespi was saying earlier, it is believable? Like how do you how do you grade this story in terms? I don't of think that? it really matters if it's believable. Or, I mean, teleportation. I think you know it, it still feels like a stretch, right? When it's not like we're anywhere like teleportation and and time travel and the holodeck and the things that you know you see. In Star Trek, they, they still feel like a long way away, right, from mm -hmm. reality. I mean, at the same time, a lot of these things are only ever one eureka moment away, right? But it's hard. Most scientists will tell you, like, yeah, we're nowhere fucking close on these things, right? Teleportation, it's, mm -hmm. it's a pipe dream. Uh, like particle transfer, whatever you want to call it. But it doesn't matter in this case. Again, I think I think Stephen King understands that, like, science fiction is a means to an end. It's not the end. Like, a lot of science fiction is that I, 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 I find very indulgent where or self-indulgent where the writer is – very very enamored with their own world building and their own ideas and they spend a lot of time talking about how clever the you know the the, the lore and the world is that they've built and getting into the into the physics of it all and i think that can be that can be cool but i think king understands that like he's like what's the what's the minimum amount of sci-fi guff that i need to sell this story <laughs> right. Right? and he doesn't and again there's like a little bit of like there's a little bit of description of like the setup and stuff like that but he doesn't waste any time talking about like he just like again, the scientist just kind of stumbles into it. Right? He has in, in the same way. Think about, for example, the fly does the same thing. I mentioned the fly a few times. They don't spend a lot of time talking about how he invented. Like he just has it. It's just something you just gotta go. You just say, look, this guy has invented te a teleportation cabinet. Are you are you are you on board with that? Good. Let's let's tell the story. Like he doesn't need to. Like, as, as as long as you can buy into the, the uh, you know the the idea that he has this technology, that's the the springboard, right? That's the starting off point for the story, rather than what the story's really about. Right. I buy it because it's it's something that just it's a convenience thing. So of course humans will pursue this, right? 
Like this is being able to teleport even just around earth would save so much in, you know, time and, and effort and people fucking hate being caught at airports and all that stuff. So I, I buy it on the level that this is something humanity would actively pursue and fund. Should there be that Eureka moment that you, you talk about. Um, and I also buy it because there are hard and fast rules that he sticks with in the, in, in the, uh, uh, the writing of it. Right. So, right. So what you don't have to understand, you know, like, oh, well, actually his physics hold up like none of that matters. But like when you say here's a limitation, it's not just like an end all be all magic. Snap your fingers. You're through a magic portal. Right. That there is some sort of science to it that we don't understand. But they yeah, like I said, he, he does just enough to sell you right. and, and no more. Right. Like It's just the, the bare the bare minimum that is necessary to make the story credible. There's some, I mean, there's some good background stuff as well. Like the context in which the thing is invented. Like, I don't remember what year. Stephen King wrote the jaunt, but I know it's one of his earlier things, and it's quite prescient when it when it talks about like you know the world's going through an energy crisis and oil prices are going through the roof, and that's one of the reasons why this technology is so transportative. Um, and they talk about how like in the future now, like all the big oil companies essentially become water companies, right? Because they they now have they, they've now they've discovered like vast amounts of water on Mars, and that's now valuable than oil. They don't need who needs oil anymore, right? Because you can just teleport stuff everywhere. Like transport's been completely transformed. Uh, but there's a there's a big issue with with water, and that has now become kind of the key um, commodity in the future. So, that, so, so there's a little bit of kind of wonky sci-fi world building in the background. But again, he doesn't get bogged down on it. It's a very short story, yeah. like probably one of his shorter short stories. And again, because he's smart enough as a writer to know, like, I this this these are the bare minimum pieces of of kind of world building and kind of rule establishment that I need to tell to, to get to where I want to get, which is that terrible last page, right? All of the world building in terms of how the technology works is only there so that you understand the, that you understand how terrible that last page is. That's right, Rob Zombie. It's time for the mid-roll ad read, once again sponsored by the good folks at Athletic Greens and our friends over at Lumi Labs. Let's start with the former. We use Athletic Greens products literally every day here at KingCast HQ. I started taking them because, you know, quite frankly, I need it. I'm going to tell you, uh, Athletic Greens doesn't taste like it's super healthy, which is also a bonus because sometimes these things taste like trash. In <laughs> fact, it has kind of a mild tropical taste that I know Vespi and I look forward to each and every morning. Is that not true, Vespi? It is 100% true. So what is it? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right this special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all of the things. It even supports mental clarity and alertness, which is something I definitely need while recording this show. And, you know, it's re recommended by pro athletes, not just tubby podcast hosts. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into you know, the fall when I think we're all going to need it. going to be a lot of traveling, going to be a lot of sick people wandering around. You know, you want to you want to have your shit built up. It's cheaper than purchasing all the separate ingredients yourself and all for less than three dollars a day. One scoop and a cup of water every time. Boom, you are done to make it easy. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash the kingcast again that is 
athleticgreens.com backslash the KingCast to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance, which also happens to have a mild tropical taste. <laughs> a nice fruity taste. Mm, yes. So delicious. I love that we have kind of a yin and yang thing going on now. So you're, you're leading off with Athletic Greens, which is all about giving you clarity and focus and a boost in the morning. Now mm. it's my turn to talk about Lumi Labs and their microdosing uh, gummies, which <laughs> is way after more... Dark. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You got the beginning of the day stuff with uh, Athletic Greens and now the end of the day stuff, at least for me. That's how I use Lumi Labs and how, how I use their products. Can I jump in here for just a second? Please do. I want to tell the folks at Lumi Labs, if you're listening, I love your product. I could not be more serious. I've been using it every single day for a long time now, and it is... It is it has made life so much easier for me in the last month. You have no idea like I'd had them before that, but I'm taking them regularly now and it is the perfect ending to every day. I take I take them every single night and also I'm running out. So if y'all could send more (laughs) of those gummies over, that would be really cool. Thank you. That's all I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. CC me on some of those because because I'm running low, too. Uh, but I mean, you and I both use these, I think, for a very similar reason, like me a little bit. You use it to kind of relax. You don't have trouble getting to sleep at night. I, I do. So mm-hmm. I use them as is is kind of like a supplement to, say, a melatonin or whatever. And it just helps me relax. It doesn't get me all screwed up and like, you know, seeing I'm not playing Pink Floyd, you know, and yeah, you're not bed stupid on them. You're just no. you're you're extremely chill. And, and, and it's so relaxed. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. These things have been kind of a godsend for me. They've helped keep my body uh, away from vampire hours, at least more more so than they usually, <laughs> mm-hmm. more so than my body uh, tends to do it. You know, as I said, when I say microdosing, it doesn't mean you're tripping balls or walking around stoned. This product is aimed at helping you relax and it works. We can vouch for that 100%. This isn't ad read bullshit. This is something we'd be telling you whether they were paying us or not and uh, keep paying <laughs> us. Though, not we like that it. we ever bullshit during the ad reads. Never, never. No. We just to be absolutely straight, we have approval over all the ads that come through. So you know, it's uh, if there's mm-hmm. ever anything that we feel is is not worthy of your ears, we uh, kick that shit to the curb. And we've done it before, and we'll do it again, I'm sure. But this is not one of those things. Lumi passed the test. So the best part is Lumi's THC gummies are available nationwide and they're not affected by your state's marijuana laws because they use a synthetic THC strain. Um, So you get the effects of it without having to worry about the feds busting down your door. (laughs) To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com. And if you like what you see, you can use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. Again, that's microdose.com, code KINGCAST. All right, let's get back to the show. If this technology existed, just as it does in the jaunt, would you make the jaunt? I understand why in the story, Stephen King talks about some people not being comfortable doing it, right? You, they, they, they mention in the story that it's actually a fairly routine thing. And mm-hmm. that in, in the course of um, like loading up a flight, so like you know, lo- loading up a, a, a you know a, a group of people to go through the jaunt, inevitably there are always people that get cold feet at the last second. And he actually talks about like someone gets up and doesn't want to take the gas. They go, you know what, I don't want to do it now, and they leave. Right. And how and how the flight attendants are even kind of like trained to just like if somebody decides they don't want to go, just let them go. Right, don't try to convince them. And it's and and you see that you see people like you know they they line up for the roller coaster right or the haunted house, 
and at the last minute they kind of lose their they're like i don't want to go and they turn right. around right and everyone gets to move one, one, one more forward place in line but it's a good question right because it obviously would be an amazing technology right to be able to go anywhere in the world instantaneously right. and we could the, the benefits are massive and the pitfalls are thoroughly mitigated right like if you as long as you take the gas you're all good you're gonna don't worry you're, you're good you're, you're not gonna have an issue but what about that one in a million right, right. In, in the same way that people are afraid to fly even though statistically it's the safest way to travel um it is it's a really interesting question because it is you know do you want to take advantage of this incredibly transformative technology but there's also a one in a million risk that you will be subjected to the worst horrors beyond imagination basically, <laughs> right. right so um I, I i get it it's a good question if that technology was real i think i would i mean you'd have to feel like you'd, you'd have to believe that they have really here's the here's the only thing if you really want to get into the nitty-gritty i feel like they would have the the the, the, the final page wouldn't have happened in in reality oh, because i think, I think they so would go things. through and make sure that yeah. everyone's actually out right there wouldn't be any chance that you weren't unconscious right. before you went through i think they would have better maybe the idea is in like after that they brought in like a new level of like checking to make sure that everyone's <laughs> right. actually out but like you would want to actually have some kind of medical test to make sure someone's fully unconscious before they would go through that's that's the only that's the only comment i would have on that but if and if that were the case fine but there would have to there would have to be zero chance of any kind of failure right because my <laughs> like you hear about people waking up during operations and stuff right. like that and right. it's it's scary stuff and um and again, he does such a the reason the reason why the story stays with us is that it's so it's 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 something so terrible. Like you, the, the fact that you can't even imagine it is what makes it so scary, yeah. right? And it's mm -hmm. it's just it's like oh my god, it's the worst thing you could ever imagine happening to you. It, it made is. me think in going back and rereading it. It made me it made me wonder. I'd love to ask Jordan Peele if he ever read the jaunt. Because it's a very similar kind of formless void terror as the sunken place, mm. don't you think? That's interesting. Yeah, it, make, it, make, it makes me. It makes me feel like it's the, that, that's the same existential horror, just being trapped with no physical form, only your consciousness in this formless void where all you can do is think mm. and slowly go insane and and submit to the to the horror of how powerless and how trapped you are in mm -hmm. this phantom zone type you know mental prison i think the closest thing we've seen to this on screen is uh you watch black mirror sure okay the white christmas special mm -hmm. and you know there's that that thing where you can have a digital assistant of yourself for anyone who hasn't seen it like you can get a digital version of yourself you can have your consciousness basically digitized put into what is essentially an alexa and get it to plan your day for you and and blah, blah, blah. So there's, once you've separated your, or doubled your consciousness into that device, um, that version of your consciousness is real pissed. Because right. it's like, what the fuck am I doing here? You are like in the jaunt, you were in a, a formless white void with nothing but your thoughts unless you are uh, being engaged by what's, happening during your other versions day so there's a there's a scene where john ham is like you know splits the consciousness and then he's like uh how are you feeling and she she is like fuck this get me out of here i'm not doing this he's like okay and like turns a dial and it's like let's go for a month and like instant it's instantaneous on his end but 
on her end, you know, she just spent a month in this solid white room with no furniture or, or anything, you know, to occupy her. And then that still doesn't work. So he ends up like dialing it way up. And then ultimately the way that special ends is John Hamm himself ends up in kind of a version of this and they fucking whoever's uh, got him trapped there, the government or whatever it is, just dials that shit for like decades or some shit. And it's the most horror. This right. is probably the most horrifying thing I can imagine. You know, you know real, realistically, it's buried alive, but this is way worse because all of that, all of that fucking time. It's so interesting. And the more I think about it, the more I wonder like how much the jaunt may have directly inspired some of these similar ideas or if people are just kind of in that same headspace. But I mean, you see this in Inception, right? Yep. Yeah, with the, yep. with the time dilation, different levels of dream. You can be in, you know, I get at the top level, it's 10 seconds, but at the bottom level, it's 10 years trapped in a, in a dream or a nightmare. That's, that's existentially uh, scary. We talked about the sunken place. When mm -hmm. you talked to, when you mentioned Black Mirror, I actually thought you were going to talk about USS Callister because it's that uh, similar yeah. idea of people being trapped inside someone else's virtual fantasy, right. right? Where they have no agency and no ability to escape, right? And yeah, totally. One of the reasons why, I don't know if you guys saw Severance on Apple, but one of the reasons why I oh, found yeah. Severance so fascinating was that similar idea of the idea that when you kind of split your personality into two pieces, you are essentially creating another version of yourself that has no agency or, or control over right. your own life, right? They, right. They, they become kind of like this slave half of yourself. Um, and and I, I find all of these different kind of concepts fascinating. The other one that I find really interesting is going all the way back to the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy there was a, there was an idea that was kind of like the jaunt but it was in a, it, it was it was it was it was done very differently they had this punishment in intergalactic you know kind of law enforcement and it, you know, it went all the way up to like death and then they had one panel, well, they had one punishment that was considered the fate worse than death and it was like for the worst criminals in the galaxy and it was this thing called the total perspective vortex and essentially what it was was it was considered the worst punishment you could ever visit upon anyone they put you in this cabinet and they turn all the lights off and you're in this like a little phone booth type sensory deprivation booth. And then they turn and then they switch it on and essentially you're inside a planetarium and all the stars are around you. But basically what it does is it puts you at the center of a completely accurate scale model of the entire universe, right? In all of its infinite vastness. And then it zooms in and it zooms in and it zooms in and it zooms into like the micro dot on the micro dot on the micro dot on the micro dot. And it says you are here. <laughs> and you and you and you basically for one even just for one moment for one like second you fully comprehend and fully understand how utterly insignificant you are in in comparison to the vast scale of the universe and it's so much bigger and so much worse than you can possibly imagine that your brain basically collapses in on itself and that's right. considered like and you come out the other end essentially like you've been through the jaunt except it happens in a microsecond Right. And so, and, and those are the kind of like, I can't even, I can't even begin to imagine how nightmarish that would be. Those, those are the ideas that kind of keep you awake at night, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of like, you know, I don't know where I read it, but I know I've, I've seen it said a few times over the course of my life that the human mind cannot r truly grasp the concept of infinity. Like it's it's such an abstract and it's so big that it might as well be, you know, completely imaginary. You know, like we can understand it on an analytical level, 
but you couldn't really understand it unless you experienced it. And I think I don't. I don't think you even have to go to infinity. It's even just something like the even some of the vast measurable distances we have in the galaxy. Like even just something as, as like the nearest star, right? When you think about a light year, well, what is a light year? Well, light travels at one hundred eighty-six thousand miles a second, and at that speed, it takes an entire year to travel that distance. Like you, even that, even even just one light year, I think, is something that you can't, your brain can't really right. get its right. arms around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's and that's not even the beginning of the vastness of the space around us. And so that's the uh, when you when you start to even like knock on the door of infinity, that's when your brain basically kind of gets up from the table and says, "I'm out." Right? Yeah, it and just that's, goes uh, yeah, done. That's what my brain I'm done. Does. And that's what's scary about it, right? Is the fact that you, you it, it, is that you you it would it, it would literally drive you insane. Yeah. Here's here's a question I have. You you seem to be a much smarter person than I am, and I'm curious to hear what your thought on this because I this is a thing like I'll I'll eat edibles or some shit, and then I'll get to thinking about this and just drive myself insane. And I'm curious to hear what your take on it is. Okay, so they say the universe is constantly expanding, right? Like in all directions at all times. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that imply then that you could theoretically travel to where it is expanding and there'd be nothing on the other side yeah right? like what, what's what's in the space that it's yet to have yes, expanded into exactly like isn't that fucked up this is precisely why you shouldn't have edibles and think about the joint and stuff <laughs> like that it's terrifying like and i don't i don't know how like that thought isn't a thing we're just talking about all the fucking time like what is on the other side of that wall what do you imagine well it's <sighs> It's interesting, is again because we, we, we're dealing with concepts that I just I just don't think there, there may, maybe there are other beings out there with like galaxy-sized brains that could actually get their heads around this. I I don't think we're equipped to, and mm. I, 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 I maybe we're not we're not meant to. Um, you know, I, I think the the degree to, you know when we'll watch those videos right where they just keep scaling out and scaling out and scaling right, out right yeah. right until you be you know, like, even just like when you were like this like look at the look at the Earth next to the Sun well the Earth looks like a tiny dot next to the Sun. Now put the sun next to the, to one of the biggest stars in the galaxy. Well, now the sun looks like a tiny dot. Now took now now take that massive star and put that next to the biggest star we've observed. Now that's a tiny dot. And like there, there comes a point where, like even relatively early in the scale, you just tap out. You just I'm, I'm like I can't I can't go with this anymore. Like you've lost me. Like you 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 just literally cannot grok it. You just cannot go with it anymore. And the and and the fact that Stephen King. Is is putting you into that space? It's like whether or not you can understand it or comprehend it. That's where we're going. That is is partly what is so scary. But what's interesting is I, one of the things I've forgotten about the story is there's a particularly terrifying anecdote that he tells about how it gets used misused by criminal organizations. Like yes. the use it to dispose like of bodies. Yeah, but I, it's funny. I should ask Ryan Johnson. Like, is there any of the jaunt in Looper? Right, because they use a similar technology to get rid to dispose of bodies i I don't think there is because we had him on the show for for a long time we were like we were promoting the idea on the show that ryan johnson's the guy to adapt uh the jaunt as a right and and we when we we had him on the show uh during our first year and he uh we told him that and he was he familiar with it eric i feel like maybe he had read it but wasn't 
like yeah owned my up memory is that he kind of shot down that that idea of like oh of yeah looper having any sort of influence yeah like, i mean I like kind of like he read it and then didn't remember much about su- it super 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 smart people are, are capable of having of having similar ideas yes right? and oh, so of course. I, I totally get that as well but the idea that, that there's one particularly scary idea that that basically one i, I was thinking about this afterwards though because i hadn't read the story in almost 20 years I went back and reread it for the purposes of you know being up to date on it for this podcast, which we thank you. Um, but I'm, I'm glad homework. I did because I, I I would have forgotten this part, which is there's a story about a scientist who basically puts his ex wife through the john, but mm. he doesn't set like an end destination, so she never comes out the other side. Like even uh-huh. in even in the real world, where she would come out the other gate instantaneously, right. she never comes out of another gate. And it's like, oh well, that's even worse, right? Because she's she's in there for infinity. But I'm thinking. Okay, but what really is the difference between infinity and infinity minus one? Like, is it really right. like they're both awful? I guess one is worse than the other, but it's hard to imagine one being worse than the other when both of them are so far beyond your ability to comprehension. And that to me is the genius of it's longer than you think. That final line that he keeps repeating. It's why people yeah. remember it, is the idea that like you cannot understand it. You right. cannot come close <laughs> to understanding it until you've experienced it. And then you know, and it's the last thing that you are thinking about before you die. It's the fucking worst, man. Can you think? Like, can you think of a fate worse? No, neither I, can I, I. Like, I. Like I said, I would I would take hostile before I would take the jaunt. Oh yeah, I'd take buried alive before the jaunt. You're gonna suffocate in a matter of hours. At, le- at least presumably. it's a finite amount of time. Yes, right? and this that's and this exactly and this, and this is a different yes. proposition altogether. Because I, I always feel like I, I personally think that mental illness is the most terrifying thing uh-huh. that we have in the real world. It's sure. like if you've got if you've or got Alzheimer's. cancer, yeah, if you've got cancer or something terrible is happening to you physically, it's it, it's ter- it'd be terrible to watch someone kind of waste away, right? Mm-hmm. But for people who like the idea that that someone is no longer even recognizable as the person that you knew. And they know, and they no longer even recognize you, and they're acting in ways that, like, that's that's not them. It's the illness. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. A t- it's. It, I can't. I, I think people that that deal with and have to care for relatives and and loved ones and people that are going through those kind of mental illnesses that fundamentally kind of change who they are and how they perceive the world and how they perceive their relationships. That to me is is hellish, and I wouldn't wish it on my worst my worst enemy. Um, it's, I remember my, my grandfather had cancer that spread to his brain and it was terrible to, to see, but once it spread to his brain, it actually started to have, like it, it it changed his, it spread to the part of his brain that governed his personality and he became a different person. And that was by far the scariest thing. It's like, I don't recognize you anymore. Was he, was he more or less pleasant? He was actually much nicer. He was a very, he was a very cantankerous, grumpy old man. And the cancer actually made him much nice. Like it ate all the, it made like ate all the toxic parts of him. And he suddenly, <laughs> and he suddenly became much more pleasant and we, and, and nicer to be around, but, but it was still weird, but it was still yeah. uncomfortable. It was like, that's not who that's, you're not who you right. are. And you, you, right. you almost want the grumpy person that, you know, than, 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 than this other fake Imposter, version of themselves almost. that this illness has created. Right. Yeah. And so, when I think about that, and and, and that's an, as an observer, like again, I can't imagine like the kind of confusion and fear that people who have things like Alzheimer's suffer with when they realize they don't rec- they don't remember things or who they are, or they get lost and confused, and they have kind of like weird moods. There's so many different like ways that you know mental illness can can torture you, right? If you're if you're a sufferer, mm-hmm. that all all of that kind of plays into 
the the, the kind of horrors that you that I imagine you would experience as your brain slowly kind of eats itself on a jaunt. Yeah, Do you know what absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. One mm. of the one of one of my favorite parts of the short story is, you know, and it probably comes around the the time that um, you know, they're talking about the uh, the gangsters, you know, like getting rid of bodies in it. But the the world building that goes on in the story is really strong. Uh, and another example of it is the the idea that they're using it to colonize planets. Like that makes all the fucking sense in the world to me. Of right. course, that's what you would do. You would. And and I almost feel like you would have to have some sort of technology like that in place if you were going to say, I don't know, chart, chart the galaxy, like fucking right. go out there and, and start setting up franchises all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. And again, they talk about in the story how like the, the like the first like the first time you have to do the old-fashioned way right so that someone has to physically ship an exit gate to mars right which takes a certain amount of time and i think they talk about how they have like big like colony ships going out into space with like exit gates that it's going to take a really long time for them to get there but once they establish the link and it's and it's erected on the other side then you can travel instantly right but, but you have to do it the, the first time you have to do it the hard way and so again there's there's lots of little kind of neat moments of of world building um, uh, in the story. And again, just, just as a piece of science fiction, even if you take the horror aspect out of it, I think, you know, Stephen King, even, even when he dabbles, right? Science fiction, <laughs> Stephen King's a better science fiction writer than most science fiction writers, precisely because he knows like only, I only want to use as much as, as I need to here. I'm not going to get carried away with my own cleverness of the, of explaining how the technology works or whatever. It doesn't I, get I, cold. I really appreciate that. No, absolutely. Right, right. No, absolutely one thing not. one thing we talked about when uh Patton Alzalt was on the show doing this title was like when we when we first heard that the jaunt was uh in the process of being turned into a TV series, which was several years ago now, and I'm convinced it's just not fucking happening. Uh I remember rolling my eyes at this news. Like, like how the fuck would you ever turn this into a an ongoing series, right? It's at best a miniseries, and really it's a feature film. Right. A short one at that. Um, but then when when Patton came on, we reread the story. Uh it's those world building details that made me realize like you probably could. You if you if if the if the jaunt is the central mechanic of the entire show. You, it could be an anthology series and you could see all those different things that that's possible to do with the technology. And if you get imagine if you had a writer's room like on Better Call Saul or fucking Breaking Bad, like Vince Gilligan doing this shit like. He, right. I can imagine them coming up with a bazillion different things that you would never think of for this particular idea. But, you know, that would require someone to. Uh, I mean, you know, people yeah, have I talent. As somebody who works in Hollywood, I I try to keep an open mind over every, things that even seem like the worst idea on the face of it because like you you have to look beyond the headline. We see this all the time, right? Oh, we're, they're going to make a movie out of this or that. I'm sure a lot of people rolled their eyes when they said they were going to make a movie out of Lego, but look what they did, right? Sure. Like you, 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 you put Lord Miller on it, suddenly there's there's genius there, right? You just if you put the right people on it and they have the right take, you can spin gold out of something that on on the surface might seem like a terrible idea. On the surface a long form TV version of the jaunt just as that, just as that one line seems like, like I, I, it's like, you've got to like, I'm not like, that's a terrible idea, but like, you've got to convince me like what, okay, how right, show right. me how you're going to do that. Um, because again, I've seen lots of, I mean, but when they said, you know, when I heard about the Watchmen TV series, I was like, no, nah. then I saw it. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. By the end it was like, okay, yes, 
right? God, Damon Lindelof so convinced me good. there was a way yeah. to do it and do it well. So I always want to know a little bit more than just, you know, judging it based on the idea. But mm-hmm. on the idea, I mean, again, we talked about how the jaunt is kind of a model of storytelling efficiency. It's short. He gets in and out. He fucks you up really quickly and he's <laughs> on to the next thing, right? And, and so my, my instinct would be, if I, if I were to do it like, okay, you've got the rights to the jaunt, Gary, and here's $20 million, go do whatever you want. And my instinct would still be, even though there's not really like a, a model for it, to, I, I think it's a 30-minute short film. Why does it need to be any more than that? I, it would probably be a pretty literal adaptation. Even to take something, and to, even to take that and turn it into a feature, you're going to have to add a bunch of new material and find a way to stretch it out and extrapolate. And again, maybe there's a way to do that. Maybe there is a way to like really dig deeper into the idea of the jaunt and come up with lots of scary you know, aspects to it. You know, the idea, you know, the, the mob boss angle, the murder angle, um, you know, the whole, there's, you know, what does it look like to, again, I would, to me, I would never go there. I would never try to like put someone through their perspective, through the jaunt, because again, you can't even begin. Right, that was going to be my to, next to, to question. Communicate it. I, you know, I would, I would never show it. I would never show the inside of it because it's a waste of time. You can't possibly communicate the existential horror of it. So why bother? It's scary. It's scary if all you see is the result. Well, and that existential horror is the reason why you'd want to try to do the jaunt on the big screen, right? You'd want to try to capture some of that. It's not really about technology because then it just becomes the portal show, right? This is what you can do with portals and, and stuff like what, what makes the jaunt, the jaunt to me is that existential horror. So that, that would have to be the key in any adaptation is getting that right. You know, getting that feeling right. And uh, the way the story set up, as you said, it's very simple. It's very direct, but it's also a great setup and punchline, right? And that that is what the story is. It's like everything about the story is setting you up for that kid to hold his breath and come out the other side raving and tearing his own face off, right? Yeah. It, it's set up for that line and for you to go like, I don't know what's in there, but I know it's bad, you know? And I know, like, I don't know what he's going through, but I kind of know enough. And um yeah, so I mean, it would be a challenge for anybody to to make it, even as a short film, you know, and, and capture that 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 feeling. But to me, that is the cornerstone piece. If you are doing the jaunt, it has to embrace that existential horror feeling of uh, of the short. That that is the only thing that makes sense to me. And like, why would you even bother without trying to capture that? Yeah, and you know, it's it's so because I mean, because because so many Stephen King stories have been adapted, and some have been adapted very, very well over the years. It's easy to instantly kind of like fall into the habit of saying, "Well, how would this be a movie? How would this be a TV show? How would you adapt this?" And I, and again, I am perfectly willing to believe because I've been surprised and proven wrong so many times before when I was skeptical about a concept, and then they pulled it off. That there is some version of it, right? Even perhaps a long form version of it that could justify its existence. But I think there's an equally strong example to say, you know what? It is what it is. That's that's the joint. Like you don't need to do anything with it. You don't need to. You don't have to. Just because something can be adapted doesn't mean it has to be. The joint is pretty much a, this pristine jewel of 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 horror science fiction. Um, and it's, and it's, it's perhaps best, better read than, than seen in any format. Uh, mm-hmm. like I said, I feel like whatever version of that kid that comes out the other gate at the, on that final page, <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know if you could do a screen version of that, 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 that would terrify you as much as that, as reading that final page does. Maybe. Hmm. I'm curious if you were setting aside all rights issues, setting aside the idea that some of them have already been made. If if you were given the keys to the kingdom and could adapt any any of King's stories or novels, 
for the screen, which one would you take on? Do you the think? long walk. Really? Yeah. Go on. Very early in my career, I was very fortunate enough to um, uh, get mentored a little bit by Frank Darabont. Uh, oh, really? Just for, yeah, it was it was really weird. Very early on, uh, I was I was on this message board, this film message board, and uh, I'm going I'm going back twenty years or more. Frank right. wouldn't even remember this, um, but uh, someone was talking about the green the Green Mile, and how they didn't they didn't like it. And they were really going in on Frank Darabont and he should have left it alone and didn't like this movie as much as this or that. And I wrote something about, because they were, they were really, got, like, really kind of piling on Frank Darabont. And I, I remember saying something about, look, as far as I'm concerned, the guy made the Shawshank Redemption. He has a free pass for life, right? One of the best you know, Stephen King adaptations you could ever imagine, right? I got, a, I got a direct message through the message board the next day from Frank Darabont saying, hey, listen, I never post on that board, but I do lurk there. <laughs> I just want to say I appreciate you saying something nice when everyone else was kind of going in on me. And I was like, oh, wow, Frank Darabont. And I was trying to get, I was, I was just at the beginning of my screenwriting career. I had my first couple of scripts, so I hadn't sold anything yet. And of course, I see an opening, you're going to take it, right? And you go, oh my God, Frank Darabont. And I wrote back and said, like, I'm going to be in LA next week. Would you be interested in having a cup of coffee or whatever? And he said, yeah. And he actually went to his house and spent the whole day at his house. No shit. Um, yeah. And uh, talked to him about, you know, my writing. I gave him a copy of the script that I had. And he gave me a copy of his version of Fahrenheit 451 that he was working on at the time that he wanted to make, mm -hmm. which was brilliant. One of the best I've, scripts I've, I've ever read. So, so good. Great. So yeah. good. And we were talking about Stephen King stuff. And he, and I, because uh, he obviously well known for doing these Stephen King adaptations. And I can't remember how it came around, but I had mentioned that the, the story I would most want to do is The Long Walk. Uh, but I, you know, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't know who has the rights or if I could even like, you know, get in that door. And he said, you won't because I have them. Mm -hmm. I've, got, I've had the long, I've had the rights to the long walk for a long time and I'm, I'm going to get to it one of these days. And of course he never did. And I don't know where the rights are now, we'll... but something about something, <laughs> something about the, well, like, you, by all means, well, what do you Tell me, what do you know? Where are they? Is there something going on? Amblin, it's Amblin that had it, right? Because it was New Line. Oh, New Line. Excuse me. Yeah. And uh, uh, Andre Overdahl. Uh, yeah. Was gonna who did, uh, you know, Autopsy of Jane Doe. He's got Last Voyage of the Demeter coming next week or next month, next year. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> um, I don't know how you make that fucking movie these days and not have it be extremely controversial. And that movie would never make, you know, that's never going to be like a hundred million dollar fucking movie at the box. No, but it doesn't have to be, right? It's a bunch of kids on a road. So No, but look at it from the way a studio might look at it. You know, they're going to be like especially right now, they're cutting they're cutting costs on fucking yeah, it's everything. It's not it's not going to fit into their spreadsheet, right? But right. you know, I think if you can make the Hunger Games, you can you can make this yeah. in terms of like the horror of it. That was um, my argument. And, it, and so here's the thing. You know, I, again, I don't remember when he wrote it. It was, it was obviously like way back when. But I think what that's a story that I think has actually become more prescient and more relevant as our culture has changed. Like you, can, I can imagine that show on television in ten years, like presented by Ryan Seacrest. Yes. You know, <laughs> like I, th I think as we have slowly remember on The Simpsons, 
when they're watching TV one time and, and Marge says, oh, wow, Fox turned into a hardcore porn channel so gradually I barely even noticed. <laughs> like that's that's kind of where, that's kind of the slide that we're on in our culture, right? Where the reality, especially in, in uh, not just in the US, but like in the UK and other places where reality television is really popular. Like, you know, we are on that slippery slope where it's like, what, what, what more can we get away with? Like how much sure. more can we exploit people? Like what are people willing to tolerate? And it only ever ratchets up one way, right? It never slides back down. Like it's like, it's like a drug, right? You become resistant to one drug you got to get the next stronger drug and we just want more and more i i have an i i, I have this theory that like if we just brought back like gladiatorial coliseum combat like the day the way it was in ancient rome it'd be hugely mm. successful oh like pe no people question. people would watch it and yeah. so and it's only societal norms that kind of keep us from from going there in the sense that we want to remain decent people even though we're you know we have i think we all kind of have that like kind of human bloodlust underneath and i think the long walk but there's something about the long walk hits the same key as the jaunt which is just this this fundamentally scary idea that it's endurance and exhaustion right and you're mm -hmm. and sooner or later you're probably almost certainly going to die right it's and only, mm -hmm. only one because only one person can win and one of the things that stephen king does really really well in that story that i remember he did really well in remember in misery when a lot of it is just describing the pain of and I know a lot of it was it was inspired by his own car accident, right? Stephen King's car accident. Well, he talks a yeah. lot about the about how when he when he takes the painkillers, the water kind of comes in and makes the pain go away, and then sure, yeah, he, he has this very these very vivid descriptors of what it's like to be in that kind of pain. And the one I haven't read the Long Walk in a long time, but one of the things I remember is he so vividly describes the feeling of like utter exhaustion. Yeah, where like you're actually the, the idea that you're actually willing to take a bullet in the head because that's preferable to having to walk another step that you're that exhausted. I'm trying to imagine what it would take to get to that place mentally. I don't have something... to. I've been to Comic Con and seen. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't even get to sit down with Denzel when you did it. So. Yeah, it's just I don't. I mean, are you guys? Do you guys? I, 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 when I when I talk about the jaunt, everyone goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I talk about the long walk, it's much more. I I, I don't know if the long walk is something that has less of a fan base but i kind of i feel like it's not just me right i mean people like the long walk it's the long walk yeah, is it's, up. we, we it's just long. did an episode on it a few weeks ago as a matter yeah. of fact and the, um we talked about this very thing that you brought up a minute ago about the the, the likelihood of that ever being real something like that it's yeah. it's the same conversation as the running man you know right or as we're talking now the jaunt which is obviously a, a far more scientific thing but um I, I love the long walk it's uh it's in probably top five king for me and it is uh in my opinion and i'll say this every single time we talk about it so apologies for doubling up listeners uh i it's his first masterpiece it's the first thing that he wrote uh that i would consider just like cover to cover uh masterpiece and that and he wrote it in college it wasn't the first thing he published that was a masterpiece but it was the first thing he wrote um and uh like to me that that stands shoulder to shoulder with his best work and it is one unlike the jaunt where i thought i feel like it's you, you've really, really got to put some thought into how you would thoughtfully adapt it and what's the best medium for it the the long walk is something that i could very to me maps very easily into a feature film or like a like a 10 episode right netflix series or something actually i'm actually kind of of, of all the things that are left that stephen king's ever written that haven't been adapted it's one of the ones that feels like the one of the biggest surprise, like really not, they haven't done that one yet. That's one of the biggest surprises. Yeah. It's me. like that in the talisman um, uh, for, for me, for like, be, uh, for that era, it's like, maybe I can understand why it's going to take a minute for the revival to get adapted. But 
but uh, when I look at the talisman, when I look at, at uh, the long walk, you're, you're right. Those are just, they're written so cinematically. It's like, why wouldn't what I see the movie when I read it? So, so you know, why hasn't it made that jump? And it, and it, and again, it's been a while since I read it, but there's, again, there's some very artful world building um, just, and again, like, yeah, cause he has to just, just, he has to set up a world where like, it makes sense that a competition like that would exist. So, you know, we're like thousands of young people. It's massively oversubscribed, right? You can, it, you, you consider yourself very lucky to get picked to do it, right? Yeah. It's like going on American Idol. Millions of people apply, but only a very few will actually get on the show. Well, I mean, and, look at, just real quick, a squid game was, became this big thing. Right. And it's kind of in that same vein where it's like a hundred people and then they, you know, die off you know, one by one until there's one winner. But then you look at like the Mr. Beast on YouTube, that guy did his real life squid game thing, which of course people didn't die, but that has like, had it was some crazy. It's like four hundred million views or something. People, I know, and I, I, the, the kind of, I, I, I thought that Mr. Beast thing just kind of like fundamentally misunderstood the whole fucking point of Squid Game, <laughs> right? Oh, it it's was like, totally tone deaf on. It's like, on what the if point Squid Game were real? Wouldn't that be awesome? It's like, have you seen Squid Game? No, it wouldn't be. It, it wouldn't be awesome. It would be fucking awful. <laughs> That's the whole point of it. Yeah, but, but the, yeah, but, but in, you know that just underlines what you know. I think we're all saying is that. There's a thirst for that kind of shit out there. That and there's the fictional version, and then there's like, oh, the quote unquote real life version, which is obviously it's not as extreme, but it's only a step away, right? You yeah, know, I, I think it's, that if if Mr. Beast did a real life, <laughs> you know, long walk on on his channel where people did die, it would have four hundred million. I mean, you could easily you know? see like a non lethal version of it, right? Where again. You know, as I remember, it's very, very, it's very, very um, strictly enforced. Right, they all have like pedometers, right, and the, and the, the army vehicles that are going along with them. Like, if you drop, I think if you drop below below five miles an hour for more than five seconds, you get a warning, right? It's like four, yeah, four miles. Yeah, I think yeah. you get like two warnings, and then the third one, you get shot in the head. So, like, you got to. I mean, it'd be very easy to do. Like, just like you know, instead of getting shot in the head, you just get you know, okay, you're disqualified, right? And just do like right. an endless endurance race would be fascinating to see. Um, but um, one of the things that I think Stephen King does really well in that story, much like Squid Game, is like it, it very quickly paint a picture of a world where it's believable that that would be aspirational for young people, right? It's like it's you're, I, I, I can't remember is it a hundred contestants? Yeah, it's a hundred, and and only one point. can win, right? So the, and everyone's thrilled to basically be entered into a contest where ninety they have a ninety nine percent chance of dying, but that one percent. It, like the, the world they live in is so shitty that dying really isn't that much worse than the reality they're in. But the fabulous, wonderful prize that you get if you win is going to transform their lives to such an extent that like 99 to one odds, which you would never take right in rural, in the real world. Right. The, the fact that people will accept those odds in itself tells you how desperate the young people coming out of this world are. Right. I'm so glad we got to talk about the long walk as well. That's my other favorite. <laughs> Good. Was that your second choice? If, it would have uh, been. My, it would have been my second choice. Yeah. Yeah. I discounted it because you know I knew we had that one with uh, Tim Simons coming up. Right. But, you know we got we got to get, we got to cover both of them. You know I know best of both worlds. My yeah, third, do, I mean I, I don't want to go down the the road of it, but I, my my third one would have been Survivor type. Oh yeah, we've covered that's an interesting shit one that out people- of that one though. Yeah, um, people have really gravitated towards that one too. That's yeah. a, that's another one. Again, I did. I mentioned Survivor Type on Twitter recently. And people started sending me pictures of lady fingers. Like people know. <laughs> people know. It was funny when you tweeted that you were reading the jaunt. We got tagged like I don't know. I saw that a bunch of times. <laughs> like people have figured out the game by now. <laughs> like, right, right, right. <laughs> 
I, somebody... I tell you, it's it's I I genuinely did as I was rereading it. My heart rate went up. I could feel that my heart was beating faster as I was reading it because I obviously know where it's going. Right. But there's something about again the, like the the fundamental eeriness and the horror of that story has never left me, and that I think is like the enduring um, power of it. But for some reason, going back and like revisiting it and like refreshing it in my mind, I I, I had a, I actually had a. This never happens when I read anything like like horror or whatever. I usually like. I'm able to take it in stride, but like I could, I had a visceral, like physiological reaction to rereading re- re- it. It's the only thing I've ever read where I can, I can say that. And that's, it's remarkable. Mm. I, I, I do want to ask you about another King property that I, I, I mentioned in passing earlier, but because you're from the UK, have you read Crouch End? No. What's that? Is that, is that from one of the anthologies? Yes. Mm. It's in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. It's my absolute favorite short story he's done it's his most explicitly lovecraftian story okay it's, it's set in crouch end outside of london mm-hmm. um and it is the scary it's fucking terrifying and and uh there's I'll have an, to read it there's an audio version that tim curry narrates okay uh from when the book initially came out and uh it is just masterful. If you can read it or listen to that, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put it on my list. Yeah, absolutely do. I would I would love to have you back. To, I will talk about Crouch End to fucking anybody. Okay, if they'll listen. <laughs> like so, if if you ever want to come back, definitely I'd love to hear your take on on Crouch End and and especially Lovecraft and all that shit. But oh, for sure. Yeah, I love all that stuff. Do we uh do we have any final thoughts on the jaunt that we want to get out before we start wrapping up? I, I, I guess the fundamental question is why is it why is it this this one that everyone goes oh fuck yeah the jaunt right we all like once you've read it it does kind of imprint on you and I think it is just that idea of an idea that is so terrifying you you, you like I said you can't you, you can't get your arms around it, right. and that's what's so scary about it. Well, I think there's two things there really. Um, the fact that it ends so strong, everybody remembers a good ending, right? So even mm-hmm. if the rest of the stuff hadn't been strong. Like that, that ending is such a gut punch and it is, it is something that sticks with you. It's something that's quotable. So you have that aspect. And then you also have what we've kept like dancing around this whole chat is that existential horror element. Um, And King is actually really excellent at that. He's maybe his batting average isn't so great with sci-fi horror in general, but uh, the existential stuff is always great. There's a bunch of that in the, in it. Right. With the, the whole ritual of chewed, you know, there's there's a bunch of that in the gunslinger, you know, at the end when he has his palaver with the man in black and you get that, you know, we're all just, you know, there's a, a galaxy, you know, held in a grain of sand and, you know, that kind of shit. Um, uh, Revival is another good one. Like when he goes existential with his horror, he's really goddamn good at it. And the uh, other the other John, thing that yeah. the other thing that is interesting, I, I, I read when I the, when I first read it 20 something years ago, and when I read it again recently, um, I became a parent during that oh. time. And I have two kids now. One is 10 and one is 10 and months old. And you can old. see one of, your, one of your dumb kids doing that. Is that what you're saying? Listen, be, becoming, I don't know if you, either of you guys have kids, but it, no, it, it changes the way that you view everything. Right. I remember for it, like the example I always give is I remember when I first saw Taken, right? Mm. There's a scene in Taken where Liam Neeson is having dinner with an old friend of his and his wife. And this is a guy that he thinks might know something about where his daughter is. Right. 
And Liam Neeson kind of goes off, and I think he like kneecaps the guy's wife or something, like in order to get this guy to talk. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, well, steady on, Liam. I've been up, I've been with you up until this point, but now you're like kneecapping this woman just to get this guy to talk. Like, have are you going too far? Mm-hmm. I watched it again after I had my first my my daughter was born, and I'm like, totally get it. <laughs> I'm like 100 with you, Liam. Yep. Do what you got to do. Shoot her in the other knee, you know, because <laughs> right. it, I, I can't watch I can't watch movies about like I I I, I like I've never seen uh, Prisoners. I know I can never watch it, right? Because I can't watch things about children being taken away, like being being kidnapped or whatever. It's the worst. It's and, a brutal I guess, fucking movie too. I, I right. I read. I remember reading the script, and that was fucking. That was enough for me. I remember reading the the the, the jaunt. Um, when I the thing that stopped me from when I read it just recently was from a parent's point of view, if you start reading beyond that last page, what's keeping those poor parents up at night the next day and for the rest of their lives as they think about what happened to their dead son is not the kid clawing his eyes out. It's the million billion years of of of, yes. of, of agony that he was, was subjected to in the meantime, right. right? It's the worst possible thing you could imagine for anyone and for that and that like i said i wouldn't wish it on my own enemy and the and the idea of knowing that happened to your child is like those parents are going to suffer uh, you couldn't live with it right it's it's really fucking dark yep part of the uh the draw with the jaunt is that as best be pointed out earlier i think you know the the tech doesn't obvi- obviously does not exist but i think it's a thing we all just generally assume they'll figure out one day so yeah. it's got that, you know, uh, the the universality of a concept where we're kind of working towards, you know, that people respond to. It's a very simple conceit, but um, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Plus, you know, as you've already pointed out, that that ending. And I agree that it's not the the clawing of the eyes and all that shit. It's it's the longer than you think. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a perfect fucking line, a perfect button on it's that one story. Of, you know what? The more I think about it, it's the reason why it's the line that gets quoted again. I guarantee it's almost like a, like a Pavlovian call and response. Right, right. If, right. I, if, I, if I just write the jaunt, I could do a Twitter experiment. Right? If I just write two words, the jaunt, into Twitter right now, uh-huh. within five minutes, I'm going to have a bunch of people saying longer than you think. Wait, do it. it, right? it, it, I'm, it do it. It's, I got a tab open to Twitter right now. I, I'll bet yeah, you you're right. I'll bet you within three the, minutes, someone will do it. You'll the, get the jaunt is the Marco and the... And <laughs> and it's the longer what, than you think is polo because again it's like that you know no one can show you what the matrix is right you have to you know, no one can tell you what it is you have to see it for yourself it's this idea of like because you can't get your arms around it because there's no way to, to to ever make you fully understand the closest you can ever come down to is that very kind of childlike formulation which which again which is so chilling it's longer than you think and it's there's something about that that just sticks with you. Like in, 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 there's there's an argument that without and let, with, with another version of that line or, or something that isn't that line, the story doesn't have the same punch that it does. But something about that line is what fucking sticks with you. It's like fuck. It's 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 like no, it's like no matter what you think it is, no matter how long your brain could possibly comprehend, it's so much worse. And you won't know that, and you won't understand it unless you experience it. That's the heart of why it's so terrifying. I think that's a a, a, a a fittingly perfect ending to this conversation. The longer than you think of this conversation. <laughs> uh, and it's at this point that I would like to turn the floor over to you, Gary, to, uh, you know, tease whatever you're working on next, whatever you want to promote, where people can find you, all all that stuff. 
yeah, thanks. It's it's easy to find me on so on Twitter. I'm just it's just my name on all the channels. So if you follow me on YouTube or Twitch or or Twitter, it's just my name G A R Y W H I T T A. I have a YouTube channel. I have a Twitch channel, and uh, Twitter is where I'm most active and where I kind of post about other things that I'm doing. I'm halfway through. Um, I'm running an original eight part miniseries for DC Comics right now called Batman Fortress, which is really fun. It's Batman, Superman, Lex Luthor, all your favorite Justice League characters in a in a kind of eight part. Uh, series that I put together. Basically, Batman has to put to, uh, put together a um, a team of second string superheroes to uh, pull off an Ocean's Eleven style heist of the Fortress of Solitude after a- aliens invade Earth. It's really, really fun. I'm having a ton of fun Sweet. with that. Fuck that yeah. sounds fun. Yeah, we just we just published uh, issue three, and it's an eight issue run. So. Uh, if you go to the comic store, you should be able to find it. It's on Comixology and those places as well. And then the thing I'm kind of most actively promoting right now, because it's just me, is my second, I wrote a, a horror novel. Uh, my first experience kind of writing a novel back in 2015, I wrote this thing called Abomination, which was a kind of medieval body horror type thing. Published that back in 2015. It was really, really fun. Wanted to take another crack at writing a novel. I just did that this year. It's coming out later this year. It's called Gundog, and it's a big kind of alien invasion, post-apocalyptic mech thing if you like mechs if you like big kind of giant you know colossus type war machines uh it's i've always i've always wanted to kind of scratch that itch and i wrote i wrote a story in that vein but the element of it that i think is fairly interesting as well as, as well as self-publishing the book which will, which will which will come out in october i self-produced my own audiobook adaptation of it it was a kind of a fun thing to do during the pandemic and uh reached out to my friend shannon woodward who is a very talented actor you may know her from hbo's westworld and she was in the last sure. part too performed and narrated the whole thing. Uh, Austin Wintry, very talented composer, wrote uh, a, a whole orchestral soundtrack for it. And basically we made this kind of nine hour audio book that we broke up into kind of nine episodic um, uh, shows over the course of a, of a season. We're dropping them as uh, weekly episodes. The first, you can actually go get the first one uh, right now on Twitch and YouTube. We're doing this kind of fun live presentation of it. This idea, every, we just did the first one last night. It was actually really, really cool. We're doing it almost like a live listening party every week, Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Pacific on my Twitch channel. We do a new episode and I show up to introduce it kind of live on video, um, kind of masterpiece theater style, but without the leather armchair and the smoking jacket. It's much more low rent than that. But I'm like, tonight's episode, and I'll kind of introduce it. And then we kind of cut to the audio and everyone gets to listen communally together to like an hour long episode of the show, right? As Shannon kind of narrates the book and everyone gets to kind of... Uh, participate in the live chat and react and oh my god what a twist and all that kind of stuff and at the end of each episode i come back and do like a live as the author of the piece i'm there to kind of answer questions and kind of do like a book club discussion talk about the episode and what's coming up next week and it's been really really fun so for people that are able to show up like every week at that date and time the twitch version is this kind of cool live presentation of it but for people that just want to might just want to listen to it like at their leisure you can also find all the episodes on um my youtube channel uh, which again is just youtube.com slash Gary Weather. Episode one just went up yesterday. And then it's also available on all your favorite podcast services. If you just go to, you just type Gundog, G-U-N-D-O-G into Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, it'll pop right up. There's a there's a seven minute preview episode available right now. And we're going to start dropping the actual episodes into the feed uh, very soon. So that's kind of the thing that I'm promoting right now is the, is the audio book. That's very cool. It sounds really fucking cool. And we encourage all of our listeners to go check that out obviously gary this was a this was a pleasure we hope you'll come back and um i would you know- love to there's there's a, a, a bunch of other stephen king things i'm i do the, happily do the deep dive with you on 
Well, we are uh, we are open for business at all times, and for the I want to I want to ask you before before yeah, we go because sure. I've got because I was so I was so thrilled for you when you got Stephen King on right. Like, yes. what, a, what a, I just just so amazing, and I was similarly thrilled for the Light the Fuse guys right when oh, they got, yeah, when when they they got, got Macquarie and Cruz to to come yeah. on. It's like God, the idea that you like. Yeah. You guys have like put in the hours. You've done so many episodes. You clearly are true believers. The idea that like Stephen King or Tom Cruise comes on and like blesses what essentially is just a fan project, like a labor of love, by coming on saying, "I think." Well, I, I, I was just so thrilled for you when I heard you guys were, were getting him. I'm sure you've talked about it, but I just I, I I haven't read anything about it. I'm just curious, like what what were you guys like when you found out you were getting him, and what was it like actually having him on the show? I, mean, I, I don't know because what I imagine is like that Chris Farley talk show. Do you remember the Chris Farley talk oh, show that he used no. to SNL? Where, well, he, where he couldn't stop embarrassing himself. Like I feel like it would, it would have been hard to, to, to not be like that. Well, the first thing to know is that we knew he was coming on the show uh, about 10 months before we actually recorded. We went through a very complicated <laughs> series of um, reaching out to so-and-so who reached out to so-and-so who reached out to Stephen King, like that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, there just came a point where we were like, fuck it, we've been doing this long enough. Uh, we think we can get him. Um, let's try to get him on. And, and Vespi sent off the email and within, and we figured if we hear anything, it'll be weeks. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's take it easy. And then like an hour later, I got a phone call from Vespi and he was like, he's in and, uh, <laughs> but he needs, he's, he, but he's finishing this book. So it's going to be a minute. And then the, the, the can got kicked down the road several times. Um, and it became 10 months. So we were sitting on that secret for nearly a year. Yeah. It was, God damn it. It was the hardest secret I have ever had to keep <laughs> in my fucking life. Like just, I mean, that's such a long time. Were you ever worried that it might slip away or something would fall apart oh, in the meantime? The okay. Every yeah, single no, fucking day of those 10 months, you know? Well, there's um, always the like, maybe it'll fall apart, but like there was those check in times and initially it was like, yes, the answer is yes. Check back in in like three or four months time. Right. And I did. And then it was like, yeah, he's still interested, but check back in two or three more months. That's what I tell and, people when I want to blow him off, though. So you never, you know, well, you know what I mean? It's like for you sure. never know where you stand. And that was kind of my point of view, where I was just like, and the reason why I, it was pretty easy for me to keep the secret, because I didn't want to start, you know, telling every friend and that I had that or whatever that this was on, because that's the surest way to guarantee it never happens. You know, that it falls through that the other shoe drops. Um, and, uh, in like Scott, like for, to his credit, just kept saying it's the easiest thing in the world for Stephen King to say no on this. So the fact that he keeps saying yes, you know, but later, right. uh, he has no reason to, to do that to us. He, you know, it's not like we're friends or some shit where he, we, he knows that we'll, our feelings will be hurt or whatever, or gives a shit if, if yeah, they are. You could have backed out know? at any time. And yeah. so the fact that he ke kept saying I'm in, but later, you know, was good news. And, uh, and he was right. And then when we finally set the date, it was, it was like, I think it was the beginning of February. They were like, all right, let's set the date for this month. And then it was three weeks out. And then that three weeks was the worst part of it because <laughs> like I was, I was just nauseous the entire time. You know, right. Vespi and I uh, drew up like four pages worth of fucking questions. We only got through one page when we talked to him. <laughs> um, Did you know that, that you were going to have him for like a certain amount of time or whatever? Ah, yeah, that's another thing. No. Remember, Scott? We, oh, uh, that's right. We didn't because know. You're, 
like we didn't know if it was going to be you know 30 minutes we, we knew that he <laughs> was familiar enough with the show that we were pretty sure we had the hour but like at the start of it he he, he was pretty much just like yep and i'm gonna be gone in an hour and right and you can hear it in the in the episode at the very end and and i still get shit for this because it totally went over my head he was throwing out signals <laughs> like okay this is i'm done here or whatever right, and right. i thought he was still trying to continue the conversation so so i'm like bringing back a point I've, he had yeah, just I've made been there, yeah yeah and, um, and and people, so many people on that listened to it were just like, I saw Vespi trying to ring out a little extra time there at the end. It's like, no, that's not me trying to, you know, so uh, just being muscle oblivious. the conversation. It was just me being oblivious. Right. The most interesting part of it, though, you know, besides, you know, the, the actual conversation was that the adrenaline was running so fucking high um <laughs> that i basically like as soon as we recorded it i had forgotten what was said yeah for the most part except for like one or two things and then oh yeah it's like Ves- a blur yeah and vespi and i had like i think we went to a screening together or something like a few days after and i was like do you have a hard time remembering like what <laughs> happened and and, right. and like and you had the same experience yeah. it's just like you know it's there's no there's we could have Steven Spielberg on this show and it still wouldn't be Stephen King on a Stephen King podcast. Like there's right. no, there's no higher level than that. Um, it was, it was incredible. It was, it was incredible. We, in, we, in fact, right after we recorded that, we recorded a bonus episode for the Patreon where we were just losing our fucking minds in the wake of, <laughs> of that episode. And it was, it was hard to, it was hard to concentrate. It was hard to, say anything you know it was mm-hmm. one of the best experiences of my life just the thing like- that I, the thing that i liked about it and again i saw it with with the light the fuse the thing recently is again when these fan podcasts kind of again they they run for a long time and you like you guys have like completely like established your bona fides right like you guys are the real deal in terms of your you know, your love for this thing this isn't like a like a passing fancy or a or a gimmick or whatever it's people that genuinely love this material and, and are doing it out of that love that when you announced you were getting him I just saw such an outpouring of goodwill. Like people were so happy for you. Do you know what I mean? I thought that yeah. was wonderful to say. Yeah. Even people who'd never listened to the show and will never listen to the show. It's, you know, it's totally fine, but they had the same thing. It's like, Oh, that's really cool. You know, right. There is something you feel that like, you know, uh, I, I mean, listen, it's the show's all downhill from, from there as, as far as we're, we're concerned, everything else is gravy. We're playing with the houses of money at this point. Right. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm glad to be catching you on the, on the downslope. Yes. Yeah. That, that we finally reached out to you when we're, when we're on the down, <laughs> downslope. Uh, we, we kind of knew when we started the show that it's like the ultimate goal was to try to get Stephen King on, but we, right. I don't think either one of us were ever convinced it would happen. It would just be like, yeah, it's possible. I think we can do it. If we get enough really good guests and we show that we're just not, you know, these, which we are these fanboys, you know, <laughs> recording out of, out of their living rooms. And, and, you know, in my case, it's like, uh, we, you know, we show that we're like actually put in the time, you know, maybe we'll catch his attention and you yeah. know, to, you know, no, I mean, I, I was, credit. I was one of those people where I saw it. I was like, man, good for them. You know, I was, I was just genuinely yeah. happy for you. It was great. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for being here today. This was a delight and, uh, we look forward to, to having you back. Thank you. I'd love to come back. Many thanks to Gary Witta for joining us on another discussion of the John. This is one of those titles that like feels evergreen to me. Like it, I'm, I don't feel like I can ever get tired of talking about this particular mm-hmm. short story. So yeah, I'm so, with uh, you on that. Yeah. So it, any super celebrity guests listening to this that want to come on the King cast, that's your ticket in babies.
So you want to talk Tom about Hanks. the John? You want to talk about the John? I know it. We'll talk about typewriters too, if you like. <laughs> how many uh, pages can you turn out in a single jaunt? How, how many? Mm-hmm. How much to your novel can you bang out in in your collectible old school antique typewriters, Tom Hanks? Yeah, the re- never, the listeners never mind about. Know. Yeah, never mind about Castaway. You were on that island for what? Like, I don't know, some months, a year, or something. <laughs> like, no, 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 baby, you're going in there, and you're going to have all the time in the world. And there ain't no volleyballs to keep you company, so... Yeah, that's true. Think about that shit, Tom Hanks. Yeah, Tom Hanks. No volleyballs in the jaunt. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so let's talk about what we got coming up. Um, I I guess I'll start, if if you want me to. I'll start by saying that we had our bonus episode last week we announced as being the It Commentary. Um, This is for our Patreon, which comes out every Friday. Uh, was the uh, it commentary with Brandon Crane, who played the young Ben Hanscom in the 90s miniseries. And uh, that was all set to go. And then a crazy rescheduling thing had happened at the last second. So that's pushed to this week, which means that the episode will hit this Friday on our Patreon. And to listen to that, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Kingcast. And we highly recommend you do so because we also got this little thing that we announced about... Uh, the King cast go on to Bangor, Maine and little spoiler alert. If you are in the gunslinger Patreon tier, that's our $10 a month tier. You might get uh, access to our first round of VIP packages for that. This so is true. This we is haven't true. said that anywhere else yet. So if you're listening to this, you are getting, <laughs> you're getting the scoop. This is right. why it pays to listen to the outros babies. You are not going to get cut out of, or possibly have tickets sold out from under you. If you are not a patron, but if you're a, a one of the kind of people that we've heard from lately who, you know, someone is flying over from England for this. event. <laughs> That's true. If you are that shout out to Sue, shout out Sue. Uh, but if you are that level of dedicated, maybe it's worth just signing up for. Uh, but that's entirely up to you. Uh, it's not like it's not mandatory. I just want to make that clear to everyone in case someone's like, why do I got to sign up for the Patreon? But like, it'll be the first round of tickets. You know, yeah. there's there's probably going to be two rounds because uh, we're assuming the first will of the VIP tickets will sell out. Do you want to tip our hand a little bit on what the VIP package includes? I think we can say that much, right? I, th- I think so. I think it's pretty safe to say that. Um, so what we're doing in Bangor is Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel are joining us for a live recording. And we're ha- still hammering out some details, uh, some finer details on that. But Mike and Kate are in. The dates are set. I can say it's middle of October. We'll give specific dates within a couple of days of you hearing this, of this launching. And I think it's safe to say that the VIP package will include a tour with your beloved KingCast hosts on the Stephen King tours tour bus going around Bangor and seeing all the Stephen King sites. And it will include priority seating at the venue. It'll include a significant, uh, really badass uh, screen print that Daniel danger is, is making just for this event. It will include likely a t-shirt and uh, just getting to hang out, hang out with your, your King cast host buddies. Yeah, that's about right. You know, we tried to put together the, the ultimate, Kingcast live experience, you know, and we're we're trying to deliver every, you know, a, a a representative thing of the show that covers all our bases and doing it in, you know, Stephen King territory. So rest assured, if you're 
if you're in that VIP group, you're going to be well taken care of and are going to have a fucking blast. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we got that coming up and uh, the people in the Gunslinger Patreon tier will get the first dibs at the VIP tickets. So if that sounds any way interesting to you, go on over to patreon.com slash the Kingcast and sign up. And not only do you get that first access to those tickets, you're going to if you've never been a Patreon member before, you're going to get access to what probably a hundred hours worth of, of episodes and commentaries and, and uh, mail bags and interviews and a bunch of shit that's exclusively available to our Patreon subscribers. Yes, indeed. And uh, next week in the main feed, we are undertaking another experiment. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, 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 maybe a month or so ago, we had the world girls on the show and the experience or, or the experiment was, um, what happens when you show a total scaredy cat it chapter one? Like how how terrified will that person be? A very festive and entertaining episode that uh, performed really well. It seemed like you guys liked that one. So we were encouraged to take on another experiment. And this particular experiment was what happens if you show the Dark Tower to someone who's never read the books, the Dark Tower movie? Like right. what, what, what would they think? How would they react to, to, to that? Would be, would they be encouraged to read the books themselves? Would they um, just be baffled by the entire experience? Like how would they feel? And to do that, we brought in a guest who um, she's an actress, uh, was in a horror movie as recently as last year, but it is a, a very entertaining episode in which you will learn about a character named Ronald, the gunslinger. <laughs> yes. Um, among other things, uh, it is. Uh, we have no idea if this is going to infuriate Dark Tower fans to hear this, or if they will be highly entertained by it. But I know that Vespi and I were both uh, very entertained when we recorded this one. So, um, you know, uh, look forward to that. Yep, I can vouch for it. It's a very fun one. And yeah, so next week we are talking about the Dark Tower movie with the Dark Tower newbie. On the main feed, and this Friday, stay tuned for our commentary for night one, which is the first hour and a half-ish or so of the It miniseries with Brandon Crane, a.k.a. Young Ben Hanscom. See you then. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.